This is an ABC podcast. I think I think we've moved away from this idea that, you know, every autistic person is like Rain Man and will necessarily be suited to a job in something kind of very numbers focused. I think autistic people just think differently by nature of being autistic. So, you know, that kind of thinking outside of the box can come in really handy in in industries where, you know, different thinking is valued. So things like advertising, marketing, um, creative industries. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and on This Working Life, Autism at Work. What's it like being an autistic person in the workplace? And how can managers and colleagues help this group thrive? I just don't think people realise how much, say, an air freshener or eating very smelly food or having dinging all the time would trigger some people. And if someone asks, is there any chance you could eat your food in the tea room, that they're not being rude, they're just trying to make the workplace more effective for everyone. How can we make the most of the unique superpowers of this underemployed cohort, especially in the midst of a labour shortage? And how can we prevent miscommunication? This is quite a funny one, but... I was asking quite a few questions and then uh, they, they said, um, you, I think there's a problem with your hearing. You're not, you're not getting this. And I said, oh, oh, okay, should I, should I look into that? And they're like, yes. And, and so then I went to get my hearing tested and, and it, was, it was fine, but they were really just joking. So I just didn't pick, that, pick up. That was, that was sarcasm. Ah, sarcasm, the kryptonite for autistic people. We connect at work through humour, but for autistic people, these jokes, especially sarcasm, can create some awkward scenarios. So how can we keep the lightness without confusing our colleagues? Previously, a a manager said I was having trouble navigating what what the other person was supposed to do. And so I asked, well, well, what what is their job description? What, What can I ask them and what can't I ask them? And then he said, oh, you should just ask for their job description. But it turns out that asking for someone's job description is actually confidential. So I went to ask a few other different people, but no one actually sort of told me that. It just sort of came back eventually like via a sort of a more senior person that that was inappropriate. But everyone else just laughed and thought that was hilarious because they'd actually wanted to ask that about that person for a long time because they were also struggling with that. They were joking, but I didn't know. I took that literally that that was a real request that how it would make our workflow more efficient if I knew what they were doing. That was Ellie. Not her real name. Science, technology, engineering, maths. She works in STEM, but that's all she can share about her job because she hasn't told her employer she's autistic. Ellie thinks autism is not taken seriously enough. It's become a term to throw around, like labelling someone OCD when they just like to clean things. She says greater understanding of autism is needed in the workplace. If you want to say something, just make sure that the person has understood. But if also someone says something that's incorrect, it's offensive, just be constructive, try and explain it to them directly. Don't go and complain behind their back or dob them into their manager, lodge a complaint with HR. A lot of these little things can be sorted out in person. Sometimes we just have no idea about about these things, but we can learn. Ellie was diagnosed as an adult but she knew since she was at primary school. It's just harder to navigate other people and 
I just don't read people or misunderstand what they say or I've offended them. Uh, but no one often tells you, so they just assume that you're weird or you're not suited to the job when if they'd just explained something or clarified, it, it probably would have been fine. I think a lot of autistic people are, you know, really keen to work and maybe are underemployed or, or haven't held a job for a while and may feel sensitive around whether or not to disclose. But, you know, as my experience demonstrates, when either you don't know yourself or you don't tell people that you're autistic, then your behaviour can be read in different ways. That's Melbourne writer Clem Basto. Her working life has become smoother since she was diagnosed age 36 and began telling employers and colleagues she's autistic. I'm sure there were people in my workplaces, you know, in my 20s and 30s who probably thought I was lazy or weird or unprofessional or grumpy. If I had that self-knowledge at the time, I would have been able to say, listen, it's just really hard to work on, you know, Friday afternoons because the office is really loud and it makes me feel confused when I'm trying to talk to you. Autism spectrum disorder is the official term for the condition that affects how people think, feel, interact with others and experience their environment. It's a lifelong disability that people are born with. Autistic people can display a wide range of characteristics, hence the spectrum. Clem says it was a relief to get her diagnosis. If you struggle in a workplace, particularly in a kind of traditional office workplace, a lot of what society says is that that means you're just slack, you know, that you don't want to work, that you'd rather just sit at home. Uh, And you do absorb a lot of that negative thinking when you don't know what's going on. So for me, I was sort of filling in the gaps going, gee, I must just be not a functional member of society if I can't handle this workplace. I know now that's not the only way to work. But at the time, as a journalist, uh, there weren't many other options. You know, you could freelance, but that was always pretty fraught and it kind of relied on the work being available when it was available. So if you weren't able to go in and work in an open plan office, that was quite a barrier to employment. To come out the other side of diagnosis and know that it wasn't just me, that there was a kind of concrete reason why I felt uncomfortable in that circumstance. I kind of had a concrete reason for feeling drained at the end of the day or, or you know, not, not being as productive as I would have liked. When I was working in the office, I was doing a lot of digital media stuff. You often have to create quite a lot of content. You know, you've got to write articles, you've got to write listicles, interview people. And so when I was feeling so worn down by the environment, I found it really hard to maintain the level of productivity that I would find very easy in my own space at home. You know, I think a lot of autistic people, particularly when you don't know that you're autistic, kind of think they're being unreasonable or you might feel like a bit of a diva and your behaviour might be interpreted in that way. If you don't have that explanation of this is difficult for me from a kind of cellular level, it's not just I'm expressing a preference for whether the lights are, you know, bright or dimmed. So I think that was really helpful as well from a work perspective. Aaron Mercer is an entrepreneur who's working hard to make it easier for autistic people to be open with employers and to give employers the tools to make the relationship work better. So Exceptional is a social enterprise. We assess the skills, we place and we support neurodivergent people into open employment in areas like technology and, and business, and we train employers on inclusion. 
the um, New South Wales state government uh, have been big supporters, uh, large organisations like Rio Tinto, down to um, small to medium enterprises and, and tech companies. And then how does your company interact with autistic people? We found out that employers were more interested in how we understand the skills and capabilities of people that often aren't great at face-to-face or, or Zoom interviews and often don't self-promote. And so we've built an end-to-end process that uses puzzles and games instead of questions. Um, interesting thing kind of about that is all of our team that have built that process and, and, and that technology, they're all autistic themselves. And so we've got a, a neurodivergent team that have built this end-to-end process that really allow people to demonstrate their potential and their capability in areas like attention to detail, logic and problem solving. And how do puzzles and games work to help with that? On the premise of show me, don't tell me. So rather than asking people how they solve problems um, or ask about their attention to detail, we actually give them opportunities to demonstrate that. And then how do you then go and help employers? We offer training to employers around neuroinclusions. Neurodiversity as a term is relatively new. It came out in the 90s. I myself am neurodivergent, so I have ADHD, but until kind of working with exceptional, I never really understood what that term meant. It encompasses conditions such as ADHD, dyslexia and autism. What we work with employers on is understanding what are the barriers, particularly for autistic people they face in interviews, in onboarding and in, in, in co-working, and what are some of the changes often that are free that they can do to um, better accommodate neurodivergent people in the workplace. And is that why you focus on the hiring part? Is that the biggest lever here? Yeah, look, it certainly is. So the UN estimate 80% of the world's autistic adults are underemployed or unemployed. And, And locally, the official unemployment rates sitting at 31% against uh, you know, mainstream unemployment of, what, 39 or 4%. So there's a significant gap there. Often the barrier is at that recruitment stage. So interpreting ambiguous language such as you know, customer obsession or dynamic team, those kind of catchphrases that are used in job ads that quite often autistic people are interpreting literally or not understanding. Their autism often impacts the way they first meet people. Often their social anxiety is at its highest when they first meet new people. And that is what a job interview often is. You're meeting someone for the first time. Employers are often looking for things like how people think on their feet, how they answer questions. Often that is not a representation of how they work. I'll give you one concrete example. So we're working with a firm that is an IT consultancy and I was speaking to one of their senior hiring managers who over the course of the last month and a bit had interviewed over 100 people, kind of screened the CVs of or interviewed. And the way this person was interviewing them was to take them off-site to a cafe that's noisy and has got lots of distractions and then throw them curveball questions. And so I asked the kind of simple question of how does their team work? when they go into an organisation and they go in and they take requirements around the change that's going on and go back and make recommendations around technology. The person just, he kind of looked at me as if to say, I'm interviewing people in a way that is contrary to how we work. But often people do that. Uh, Often managers think they're being disarming if they take people off-site to a cafe or, or to a social gathering. And for autistic people in particular, that can be really quite overwhelming and anxiety-inducing and simply not the best way of them presenting themselves.
interviews are stressful, full stop. But for an autistic person, they can be so stressful that you sort of blank out. So you might find you are the perfect person for an advertised job. But when you get in the room for the interview, you're so stressed that, you know, you can't put a sentence together and you sort of go minimally verbal or you're so overwhelmed that you don't hear the questions. Clem Basto says basic information can make a big difference. So she now asks ahead. So saying to the person who's going for the job, you know, this is what the building looks like. Here's the room that you're going to have your interview in. Here's a photo of all the people who are going to be talking to you. Just those little things that can help you prepare and feel more comfortable in the moment. It's our view that the biggest barrier is actually not on the with autistic people or, or people with other neurodivergent conditions. It's actually biases and fear and uncertainty around uh, from, from hiring managers. Autism is classed as an invisible disability. Often it's not understood what needs to be done in terms of making adaptations. And, and often those biases are formed from either personal experience or TV shows like The Good Doctor or movies like Rain Man. Well, what's the fear? What are they fearful of? Upsetting team kind of dynamics. At a hiring manager level, often that fear is not knowing how to accommodate and not wanting to do or say the wrong thing. Even getting tripped up with language. So you'll notice I'm talking about autistic people. Often it's written people with autism. We take an identity first approach. That's because all of our autistic staff and the majority of the candidates we work with prefer that. Our philosophy is ATP, ask the person, (laughs) what do they need to accommodate? And, And often there's a fear about offending people, doing or saying the wrong thing. Aaron says senior managers are very relieved to get this advice. You've got massive skill shortages in key industries. You've got a group that's largely underemployed or unemployed. Often they've got terrific skills, numeracy, attention to detail, things like that. It often falls on a hiring manager to actually execute that. And and so they're uncertain around, well, how do I change the way that I work? Can I run a merit-based process for selection? if we're being asked to make adaptations. And often the adaptations that we suggest are things like providing the questions 24 hours in advance or two hours in advance so that people that have challenges with auditory processing, sensory sensitivities, or just get really socially anxious, they can have some time to prepare. And so there's a fear that you're lowering the bar or that you're providing an unfair advantage. And to that we say, do it for everyone. Temperature and light is is a big one as well. You know, if I'm too hot or too cold, I sort of start to shut down a bit and can be quite distressed. You know, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who loves to work in an office with really harsh fluorescent lighting. Clem Basto has adapted her working life significantly. She freelances so she can mainly work from home and control the physical environment and routine. If I wake up and I've got a big sensory emotional hangover from the day before, I can kind of take my time and work when I know I'm going to be the most productive. But she's now open with employers and colleagues about being autistic and she's got better at saying what she needs. My journey towards diagnosis of autism started probably in my mid-20s and a lot of it was to do with work. I found that I was just struggling in the workplace in a way that sort of seemed unusual. I was starting to worry that, you know, was I slacking off or something because I didn't want to be there, but I knew that I wanted to work. It was just that the circumstances of so many workplaces seemed to be difficult for me, whether that was 
socially, you know, talking to other people or, or hot desking, uh, but also things like the sensory input. So I would find that, you know, fluorescent lighting and heating that was too hot, I'd come home really drained. So that sort of started to build up around my mid-20s. And then in my early 30s, uh, in my work as a screenwriter, I was getting consistent feedback about my screenplays relating to characters. It was, you know, not clear what characters were feeling, what their sort of emotional state was. And I started to kind of think this seems odd given that, you know, I knew I was doing all right because I won a couple of contests. I'd had scripts funded for development. So I knew I wasn't a, in inverted commas, bad screenwriter. It just seemed to be this funny thing around emotion. So through the process of researching a character who was on the autism spectrum, I, I kind of started to recognize myself in a lot of what I was reading. And, and that was that was the process that I began when I was 36. The way that autism interacts with my work is often kind of sensory based. If there's, you know, sound that I can't help but tune into, it might be other people talking, it could be, you know, a sound from down the street, I'll find it quite hard to focus. The sort of flip side of that is often, you know, autistic people, and I'm one of them, um, move around a lot. So, you know, when I'm working, I'm often jiggling my leg or fiddling with something. And that's a way to kind of tune out the noise. It's interesting, because I think a lot of the times with autistic people, those sorts of seemingly involuntary movements are kind of understood as a bit sloppy or, you know, unprofessional, but in a way they can actually help us focus better. Clem says there's a lot of crossover between autism and ADHD experiences and a lot of autistic people have ADHD. I think broadly speaking, the idea of accommodations for neurodivergent people are obviously helpful for autistic people and people with ADHD, but I think they're helpful across the board. Aaron Mercer set up an employment agency that connects autistic people with employers, and he also hires a lot of autistic people. He shares a story of an autistic man with a PhD in applied physics. Early on, we ran a, a couple of workshops for a technology company and a couple of their clients. These were pre-COVID, and so they were in-person workshops. And we had someone kind of go through that process. They were you know, finishing off a PhD in, in, in Sydney and obviously highly capable, highly intelligent, but socially shy. And they were literally asked in a job interview process after we'd run this workshop with the employer, how would you compare yourself to the other candidates? And so, you know, so, someone that doesn't interpret things literally like this individual does, but they might see that as an opportunity to differentiate themselves. Well, I speak this language or I've been to this amount of countries and I've studied this and I've started my own social enterprise, whatever it might be. But this person literally said, I do not know, I have not met them. <laughs> because he was talking about a short list of candidates that he had no idea who they were. And the irony of that is that he was going for a role as a data analyst. And data analysts don't make snap judgments or gut feel recommendations. They look at the data. And he literally didn't have the data. He didn't know who, who he was up against. It's those kind of questions that, all the kind of stump you questions that, that often autistic people can really stumble with and not know how to answer. We've had cases of, of people that we've placed who getting really confused in the first few weeks of work because their manager is using phrases like, at the end of the day, you know, Lisa, at the end of the day, dot, 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 literally thinking that the person was talking about 5pm that particular day. <laughs> yes. 
sometimes we we kind of assume a level of knowledge and understanding. You know, phrases like "we need to stand up a team to do this," literally not understanding what that what that means. Yeah, ask the person. Don't assume what we understand in terms of those kind of common sayings because they're not necessarily common in in, in that context. You've referred a lot to technology and a tech focus. Is that um, a good place to focus on for autistic people in your experience, Aaron? Yeah, look, it's, you know, organisations like ours can get uh, criticised for. Um, we Not all autistic people want to work in tech, but at the same time that, you know, there are skills like attention to detail and problem solving and pattern recognition that lend themselves really well to tech careers at a time where you've actually got... Um, just acute skill shortages. And so therefore, what are the adjacent areas that you think are high potential here? Often um, the autistic people that we see are fantastic at repetitive tasks and following a process. Often they've got really high, highly developed numeracy skills. Warehousing is, is one, procurement processes, administration, things like contract management, so people that need to be fastidious around documentation and archiving. Away from our shores, there's some fantastic companies in places like the Netherlands and Belgium that have really quite advanced programs with autistic people in areas like document archiving, uh, actually you know, police scanning of imagery and, um, and surveillance because you're talking about people that have just got elite attention to detail and can see anomalies, can see the big picture and the small picture. We're, we're not as advanced in, in our market and we're very much driven by what the organisations we work with need. So we're a, you know, we're a social enterprise, we're not government funded. Most of the roles we get are uh, technology focused, but we are working hard to try and create more opportunities for autistic people. And if an employer has attracted autistic staff, how do they best retain them? ATP, ask the person. So we had a scenario, uh, Lisa, recently where an autistic staff a member had gone in that we'd, we'd supported through that process and on day one, the manager, just wanting to do their best to be welcoming, took the person off-site to a cafe and had the entire team with them. So straight away, you've got sensory, you've got baristas and people chatting and a high, just a high kind of social environment. This person did not feel comfortable in that, but it kind of didn't feel they could speak up and the manager was none the wiser. Then coming back into the office, the person had 11 one-on-one -on -one meeting requests, you know, the first thing that they saw when they opened up their, their laptop and, and logged in for the first time. And all those meeting requests, they had no kind of context in terms of who the people are, their organisation, um, and why they wanted to, to meet. And so that, that person actually found that incredibly overwhelming. Often ADHDs like me find this, autistic people can find this, the ability to hyper-focus and do prolonged periods of deep work, hours on end at a time. Often we work with people who find interruptions, instant messaging, things like that, really challenging. So we work with some really innovative employers who deliberately silo time, um, turn off notifications, and 
kind of get out of people's way. I'm listening to this and I'm actually thinking that ATP is a really great policy for all workplaces and all individuals. That's the thing. I mean, it's a, it's a great point. So we, we do, before anyone comes through our process, they've done the puzzles online, we produce a report on them, shows their skills, but also shows how they like to receive feedback, how they like to receive instructions. And we've had big businesses, banks, telcos say to us, you know, we should do this for everybody. Aaron, and why have you focused your business on autistic people, given that you personally have ADHD? So we look, we work across neurodivergent conditions. 90% of the people that come to us are autistic. Two key reasons. One, they're profoundly disadvantaged in terms of unemployment. So they're three times more likely than any other disability to be unemployed at a time of of acute skill shortages. And really, often they're being overlooked for some really naff reasons, such as not making eye contact or answering questions like the the person I mentioned before with the physics PhD. So you've got this group of untapped talent that are often highly skilled at a time of skill shortage. We're doing our bit in the middle to connect those two. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you. That's Aaron Mercer, co-founder of Exceptional, which helps neurodiverse people find employment and also supports employers. We made this episode on the lands of the Gadigal and Wiradjuri people. This Working Life is produced by Sarah Allerley. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, love your work. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.